welcome back to The Wise Man's Page, the daily podcast where we read Patrick Rothfuss's The Wise Man's Fear page by page. This is page 319. I'd run a few more tests in the time it had taken to sew the pants and stuff the straw man, but at the end of the day, I am a trooper first and all else second. As such, I couldn't ignore the chance for a little showmanship. I closed the door behind us while Kilvin looked around the room curiously, deciding to let my work speak for itself. I brought out the crossbow and handed it to him. The huge master's expression went dark. Well, I quoth, he said, his voice heavy with disapproval. Tell me you have not squandered the labor of your hands on the improvement of such a beastly thing. Trust me, Master Kelvin, I said, holding it out to him. He gave me a long look, then took the crossbow and began to examine it with the meticulous care of a man who spent every day working with deadly equipment. He fingered the tightly woven string and eyed the curved metal arm of the bow. After several long minutes, he nodded, put one foot through the stirrup, and cocked it without any noticeable effort. Idly, I wondered how strong Kilvin was. My shoulders ached and my hands were blistered from struggling with the unwieldy thing over the last several days. I handed him the heavy bolt and he examined it as well. I could see him looking increasingly perplexed. I knew why. The bow didn't have any obvious modifications or sigildry, neither did the bolt. Kelvin slotted the bolt into the crossbow and raised an eyebrow at me. I made an expansive gesture to the straw man, trying to look more confident than I felt. My hands were sweating and my stomach was full of doves. Tests were fine and good. Tests were important. Tests were like rehearsal. But all that really matters is what happens when the audience is watching. This is a truth all troopers know. Kilvin shrugged and raised the crossbow. It looked small braced against his broad shoulder, and he took a moment to carefully sight along the top of it. I was surprised to see him calmly draw half a breath, then exhale slowly as he pulled the trigger. The crossbow jerked, the string twanged, the bolt blurred. There was a harsh, metallic clank, and the bolt stopped midair as if it had struck an invisible wall. It clattered to the stone floor in the middle of the room, 15 feet away from the straw man. Unable to help myself, I laughed and threw up my arms triumphantly into the air. Kilvin raised his eyebrows and looked at me. I grinned a manic grin. The master retrieved the bolt from the floor and examined it again. Then he recocked the crossbow, sighted, and pulled the trigger. That's the page. I'm Jeremy. I'm Jordana. I'm Nick. This is fun because Kilvin is taking the role of the reader. Kilvin is discovering everything at the same time the reader is. Quoth doesn't say, you know, my actual contraption was hanging up across the room next to the straw man. The attention of Kilvin mirrors the attention of the reader. We too are meant to think that he has somehow improved the crossbow Mm -hmm. and are meant to be perplexed when we find no sigildry on it. So it's fun to be in a a new perspective. Quoth is is doing a little bit of that work for us by telling us that there are no modifications to the bow. But, of course, he doesn't tell us what he has been working on all this time. And since the crossbow is the only part of his contraption that we've seen him buy, where we are really in the dark on this one. I also feel, if I may, that this page is doing a really good job of building Kilvin's character without any dialogue except for him saying, well, actually, that's, so there is dialogue because he says, tell me you haven't been wasting time using your, your skill and your knowledge to make something that kills people better is basically what he's saying to Quoth. And then there's an interesting layer added onto that because after he said all of that, Kilvin demonstrates that he really knows how to use a crossbow. 
He knows, not only does he understand like how the mechanism of the, you know, cranking it works, but he also knows like proper shooting technique, taking half a breath and letting it out when you squeeze the trigger. Like that's something that I know from other fiction that like, that's how you're supposed to shoot a gun. And I'm sure that it's the same shooting across because you want to like let the tension out of your body as you let the thing go. So what does it tell us about Kilvin's character that he knows how to use a crossbow, but that he's also like seemingly opposed to using the talents of an artificer to make a weapon better? And he's very strong, very effortless. Not to get too wild in my speculation, but you know, what if he once was a warrior? Or what if he once was a weaponsmith or something like that? Yeah, see, like that. I don't think that's wild at all. I think that the evidence on the page is meant to draw us toward that conclusion that he, at the very least, he's seen war and what it does to people. And maybe he was even complicit at one point in his life in making weapons better. Guys, I want you to be, to just take a moment and appreciate the amount of restraint it took for me not to do a bit when Jeremy said cranking it. Look, (laughs) you know what? I do appreciate it, but also go off King because all weapons, there's so many sexual innuendos hard things penetrating soft things you've got thrusting there's you're shooting stuff and then it takes a while especially with a crossbow you have to like you know it takes a lot a little while before you're ready to shoot again right so that just completely negated nick's not making a bit out of it that's right well by calling attention to the fact that he hadn't made a bit he made a bit out of it something that really grinds my gears in in fantasy fiction and historical fiction is whenever someone says they fired their bows or they fired a crossbow oh god i can't stand it in lord of the rings they go fire and i'm like no you don't fire a bow you loose them yeah you loose or you shoot it's not accurate because the term fire only came into use when they started using fire to make projectiles go right when they started like having to like light the the wick on the cannonball like when you use a musket, there's like a fuse that's that's primed. So there is fire involved. And that's when that term came into use. So it's anachronistic to say that you fired a bow because there's no fire involved. Unless you light the tip of the arrow on fire. No, even then they would say loose. Not fine. Sorry, because the fire isn't making the thing go. Reasonable. When you light a cannon or you you like, you know, are using a musket, fire is making the thing happen. I see the logic there. Kilvin still at the time of the second bolt isn't quite sure what's going on. He checks the bolt again. He thinks that the Sigildry might be somewhere on the bolt. And it's not until he fires off the second one that he hears the actual arrow catch go and he realizes what's going on. Well, and this also tells us about Kilvin's like methodical mind. He shoots once. Presumably he hears the clank, but he doesn't right away make the connection. And he, he's like testing him, his hypothesis, right? He's like, okay, I shot the bolt. It didn't hit. What's going on there? Okay, I can't see any single tree on the bolt or on the bow. So I'm going to do it again and see what I can figure out. It's sort of like, a, it's like a roguelike, but with crossbows because he did it once and then he had to go do it again. <laughs> yeah. And, and you have a little bit more next time. You have a little more information, a little more skill. Roguelike with crossbows. <laughs> That's right. No, this is a really fun, this whole chapter is great. And in the uh, in the chat, we have people this week and last week uh, sounding off saying how much they like this chapter because it's just so much fun to discover this along with Kilvin and Kvothe's showmanship is really effective. There's sort of two things that I want to tease out there. 
maybe it's just because I am a liberal arts person, but I am totally on Quoth's side here that if you want, like, I think that especially if you're staging something that's kind of technical or difficult to understand, having a little bit of showmanship goes a long way, especially when you're like someone like me who's not technical to making me want to pay attention. So whenever like I had a science teacher, like I was not a very good science student, but whenever I had a science teacher who was willing to like do like fun practical demonstrations of like, here's what liquid nitrogen does to things, I got way more engaged. Uh, so I really appreciate that instinct of quotes and I think it serves him well. Um, because I think if he just like explained to Kilvin what it did, Kilvin would not be as taken with it. Or he might be a bit more critical of like, uh, as he is later on, where he says, well, this could be used for X, Y, Z. And I also think that something that is a joy in fiction and that this chapter is doing, I think part of the reason why people like it is because it's always nice to see characters who are good at something do the thing they're good at. Oh, man. You know what, Jeremy? This reminds me. We were talking about the Beru Cormorant books just before we started recording here. And it's so true. I think one of the joys of the first book that is absent in the second is that there's a long th stretches in the first book where Beru wins by her administrating powers, which sounds boring, but it's not. It's really enthralling and great because that's like what she's good at and she's using it to further her own ends. And that is absent in the second, not absent, but it's mostly absent in the second book. With the exception of the part uh, and on the Lacedaemon Islands where she like completely ruins their economy in like an afternoon. Exactly. And it's so much fun to read. That's like one of the best parts of that book uh, because this, this is something that Jeremy rightly points out is like an absolute joy to encounter. Mm -hmm. And so it's nice in like that happens a lot in this in this series, this King Killer series, because Quoth is good at so, so many things. <laughs> but just to bring it back to our conversation that you, the listener, were not a part of. We were talking about how the second book is a little bit harder to get through. And I think a big part of that is because time out. The second book of the Beru Cormorant series of the Beru Cormorant series is a bit harder to get through because she is depressed and not nearly as effective. And the long stretches of her doing the things she's good at are few and far between. Mm -hmm. And I think it's like a tension that you have to balance when you're writing stuff, because part of like one useful tool in drama is to show characters struggling, right. And not succeeding and like, you know, facing setbacks and that's all fine and good, but it sometimes we just want to see characters like excel at the thing that they're supposed to be good at. And I feel like, this doesn't hold true of this particular example, but I think it's true in general that often it's something that you'll see at like the beginning of a movie to set up that the characters are good at X. Invariably at like the beginning of a superhero movie, they'll show the superhero stopping a relatively low stakes crime just so we're reminded like, oh yeah, like they're, they're good at the thing they do. And these are all their powers and yeah. And another example that comes to mind is that when uh, my partner and I were watching Star Trek, they very rarely show the characters like not being good at their jobs. Like part of the joy of that is just seeing a team of people who are all very competent, being competent and using their competence to solve the problem. Yes. I think that's part of the appeal of shows like CSI. Yeah. Yeah. And like master chef junior, even to an extent, like it's so much fun to watch these people do something that they're passionate about and do it well, mm -hmm. especially in these bleak times when nobody is competent. Yes. Yes, indeed. <laughs> Well, yes, regrettably, we, we, we don't see a lot of competence in the areas of things like, you know, government or or things like that. So we have to take it where we can get it in our fiction. The fantasy mm -hmm. of people who are competent, competent at uh, at their work. Yeah. 
I think that's a big part of the appeal of the West Wing, especially as it like the Bush years dragged on, you know? Yeah, well, and the West Wing is a particular kind of like neoliberal fantasia, right? Where like we if we could only get the smart, competent people in in charge, they would solve all the problems smartly and competent. I can see how that's an appealing thing, but of course the flip side of that show, and this is not if you want podcasts that critique the West Wing, there's plenty of those. But all I'll say is like the flip side of that is like they're constantly compromising with the evil people because that's part of their ideology, right? Like, Well, and part of the fantasy on that show is that the evil people are equally principled. Yes. And open to compromise. Yes, as opposed to what we know to be the actual reality, which is that both liberals and conservatives are like venal, incompetent, (laughs) self-important dipshits. Uh, Jordana, have you anything to add to our discussion about how both liberals and conservatives are uh venal i think i think uh i think i'll just uh i'll let you guys handle that all right this letter is from patrick not rothfuss who writes on page 291 laying pipe oh no hi everybody it's not what you think jordan i promise thank god hi. <laughs> hi everybody after the laying pipe bit on this page jordana flippantly refers to nick as dr nick this got me thinking, how is it possible with all the Simpsons bits you have done on the podcast that you have not done a Dr. Nick bit? Cheers, signed Patrick Not Rothfuss. I love that this letter has nothing to do with the book at all. And like most of this episode hasn't had anything to do with the book either. Trinita, I take issue with that. We spent most of this episode talking about Kilvin's characterization. And we smoothly segued into a critique on a show that arguably influenced a generation of politicos for the worse. All right, so getting back to the letter and all the, all the salient information there within. Yeah, I think this is an issue of like negligence, not willful omission. You know, like we just haven't gotten around to it. Let me tell you, when I was in middle school, people started calling me Dr. Nick in the hallway. And I, as an innocent lad who was not allowed to watch shows like The Simpsons at home, had no idea what they were talking about. People would be like, hi, everybody, to me. And I was like, what, what is this? What are you doing? I don't understand. And it took me a really, really long time to put together that they were doing a bit about the character Dr. Nick Riviera, a character who, personally, I don't think is all that funny. I don't know if that's just because I'm saddled with the same name. And having people bark the bits at me. But uh, yeah, I mean, The Simpsons has done better bits. I don't know. There's some good Dr. Nick bits where when Homer's like trying to gain weight and Dr. Nick's like giving him like the, the diet. Like you want the rock. If you're concerned about if the food has enough grease in it, you just want to rub a piece of paper on it. That's your window to weight gain. Yes. Thank you, Jeremy. This has been the podcast that recites bits from other bits of content. <laughs> That That is what we do. That's what we do here. Jordana, also, I want to point out, a listener wrote us a letter inquiring about bits. Nothing to do with the content of The Name of the Wind or The Wise Man's Fear, which should just tell you that that's why people tune into this show. That's why Patrick Not Rothfuss tunes into this show, okay? I'm just saying there are there are probably listeners out there who care deeply about the book also. Jordana, we, ha- we have to appeal to all the quadrants. There's the quadrant that wants to hear about the book, there's the quadrant that wants to hear about the bits. There's the quadrant that wants to hear about Star Wars. And there's the quadrant that wants to hear about how we as a labor movement need to band together in solidarity. The funniest part of that is that you think a whole quadrant is just Star Wars. <laughs> <laughs> you know, people, people come to this podcast 
thinking they're going to like it because we talk about Name of the Wind. And they stay because our bits are funny. You know what? Fine. <laughs> yes. And Jordana, we we are consistently cranking those bits. Okay, well, we can crank those bits tomorrow on another page. <laughs> you promise? Yes. <laughs> Listeners, you can rank our cranks on tomorrow's page. Of... The Wind! Wind.